Tonight, like Jared said, we're gonna, is anybody else covering Ruth or am I kind of it? You're it. Okay, good, because I'm gonna kind of cherry pick from, di from different chapters, but really kind of camp out in chapter two, because as far as I see it, it's kind of the meat. It's kind of the, the, the place where at least there's the most that we can glean from it for our lives. Um, chapter one kind of sets the scene, and chapters three and four is kind of the big climax and conclusion of the story. But really, the, I guess the plot of it is set in chapter two. Um, so that's where we'll kind of be looking. But um, for those of you guys who did read, as we get going, um, let's just refresh ourselves, or maybe for some of you guys who didn't get a chance to read it, give you some uh, a, a, a quick previously on the book of Ruth. Um, what happens in chapter one? By the way, I didn't design all this for you guys. We uh, at our church, we had done a. I'm not that handy or artistic, by the way. Uh, uh, we had done a series on the book of Ruth this summer at our church, and so I kind of had some slideshows put together, which is why I was like, hey, can I just set it up? That would make it easier for me as well. But yeah, so chapter one, what happens? What happens in Ruth chapter one? Naomi's, the boys of Naomi's family die. Okay, all, all the dudes die. All the guys in the family die. What's the little uh, time stamp, if you will, that we get at the beginning of the book that lets us know where we're at in the story of the Bible? The time when the judges ruled, or when the judges uh, judged. All right, so, and as Jared just said, this is the time when everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes, when there's no king in Israel. And so what we have in chapter 1 is Elimelech and Naomi doing what is right in their own eyes. What do they do? What's the problem? There's a famine in the land. What do we know from uh, the law, the book of the law, from uh, like Deuteronomy and so forth? What did it mean when there was a famine in the land? Disobeying. There was disobedience. God said, if you, if you are not faithful to my covenant, I'll make the sky above you like bronze, he says in Deuteronomy 28, and you will perish quickly from the land. Rather than going, oh no, this means we're out of step with the covenant, we need to repent, what did Elimelech and Naomi do? Peace. There's food in Moab. Let's go there. Okay, what was what? Who are the Moabites? Why does that matter? They're bad news. There's one of the strangest stories in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. We get the origin story of the Moabites. I won't go into it now, but it involves uh, incest and daughters sleeping with their father, and that's the, the child that comes from that is named Moab. Fast forward 400 or so on years, you have the people of Israel coming out of slavery in Egypt. They're going to come into the promised land. They tell the Moabites, let us pass through. We're not after your land. We're not going to take anything. Let's get the water we need and move on. The Moabites say no. In the book of Numbers, you have Balaam and the, all sorts of stuff. And so not only are the Moabites kind of looked down upon for based upon how they started as a group of people, but also for the way that they treated the people of Israel when they came out of Exodus. Um, first try to curse them and fight against them. Second, they lead them astray into worshiping idols. And so God tells his people in the book of Deuteronomy, don't have anything to do with them. Don't have anything to do with them. So, was it faithful or unfaithful for Elimelech and Naomi to go to Moab? Unfaithful. Unfaithful. And things go from bad to worse. They get there. There's food. Hey, there's women. Their sons are able to get married. But then one by one, all the males in the family die. So what does Naomi do? Goes home. Goes home. She hears, oh, food's back. There's, there's, been, there's, there's food to eat back in Bethlehem, which is where she's from. This is our other most famous story that happens at Bethlehem. The other one is why this room is decorated so pretty. Um, there's a, um, and so as we move into the story, we have Naomi who comes back. What does she try to do with these two Moabite wives? Send them away. Send them away. Orpah, what does she do? She goes away. Ruth, what does she do? She stays. She stays. Don't make me leave from you. Your God will be my God. Where you go, I'll go. All of that. She says, I'm, you're stuck with me, Naomi. Naomi comes back into the town of Bethlehem. And what do the women of the town say? Is it you? You're back. No way. Is it you, Naomi? And what does Naomi say to them? Look at verse 20 of chapter 1. 
<laughs> Do not call me Naomi. Call me what? Mara. Mara. Does anybody have a handy little footnote that tells you what Mara means? Bitter. Bitter. Why? For the Almighty has dealt very bitter, bitterly with me. Who does she implicate as the cause of her suffering? God. God. I went away full, and who brought me back empty? The Lord. Okay. So, beginning of this story, we have this woman, Naomi, who is bitter because things have not gone the way that she wanted them to go. There's one thing we talked about a lot when we were going through the book of Ruth, um, when we were doing this at our church this summer, and one of them was kind of the contrast between faith and common sense. Common sense. Kind of the way that the people were operating during the book of Judges, right? Well, this is what seems right in my own eyes. Elimelech, Naomi, operating according to common sense. Things go from bad to worse. And not only is she disappointed, she blames God for it. Have you ever been in a situation like that? When you thought you were operating, at least according to how well you knew things, what, what, what seemed best to you, but God didn't keep his end of the bargain. Common sense often puts God on the hook for promises that he never made, but for what seemed like the right thing to us. God, I did things right. I did things the way I was supposed to do it. Why isn't it working out for me? That seems really where Naomi is at the point of this book. When we were talking about it, um, we talked about these different questions that common sense versus faith, they handle the situations of life kind of by asking different questions. Common sense, when we just think what makes sense in our own eyes, often starts with thinking, how can I get the most at the least cost to myself? What will bring me the most long-term satisfaction? And usually, how can I avoid pain? I was talking to my brother-in-law over Thanksgiving. He's one of those kind of people that we call early adopters who just seems to know the next gadget before anybody else does. And he was telling me, he's like, you know, when I'm trying to think about what kind of inventions will catch on, basically it just comes down to what people will always choose to be more lazy. So whatever allows us to be more lazy, that's what everybody's going to catch on to. Why? Well, because we all naturally operate according to what gets me the most bang for my buck, what helps me avoid pain or effort. Faith, on the other hand, we talked about, often adds, well, let me say one other thing about that. When we operate according to common sense, when we make plans based upon what we think, and then expect God to back us up on those things, it often results in bitterness. And bitterness toward God, which really isn't fair because you're upset with him for not keeping promises that he never made. Seems in a big way kind of where Naomi's at at this point in the story. But faith, as you see up there, asks different questions. It doesn't start with what makes sense to me. It starts with who is God? And then who am I in relationship to him? What is he doing? And where is he calling me to trust him? So think back, Elimelech, Naomi, famine in the land. Pongo, as you said, the famine represented, we're out of step with the covenant. What is God doing? He's causing the very everyday stuff of our life to clue us in that we're out of step with what he wants us to do. Where is he calling me to trust him? Repent, come back. That's not the way that they operate. But what we begin to see through this one woman, Ruth, she begins to operate according to faith rather than common sense. And by the end of the story, we actually see this has a very transformative effect on Naomi as well. There was another thing we talked about a lot when we were uh, going through this book. Um, kind of the main theme of our, of our summer series was uh, how this book shows us God's heart for the marginalized. Okay, there's, a, there's a good cultural buzzword, so let's talk about it for a second. What does that word mean, marginalized, or marginalization? Gets you a lot of points in Scrabble. It's got a lot of letters. To it. What does that mean? People on the outside. Okay. On a piece of paper, the margin or the outside pieces of it. Totally, yeah. So if you set your margins on a term paper or something like that, inside the margins is where all the content is. Yeah. Outside's just the white space, right? <clears throat> we could probably illustrate it maybe something like this. That... Inside the circle is where things are happening. 
outside the circle are those who are left on the outside. Is marginalization a problem, just a reality of life? What do we do about it? Jesus um, reached out to the marginalized. So if we're called to be like him, we should do so. Okay, totally. Yeah, we see Jesus crossing over. But in some ways, it's interesting because Jesus was on the margin, right? Mm -hmm. And so there is a sense in which Jesus also recentered the circle. Mm -hmm. Hey, I know you think I'm off here and it doesn't matter what I'm doing, but I'm actually the center of everything. And now who's in and who's out is based upon me. Oftentimes, marginalization is a matter of perspective, right? It's between the mainstream and those who are on the margin. Oftentimes, those who see themselves, perceive themselves to be in the mainstream, ask the question, why doesn't everybody think the way that we do? Those who perceive themselves to be on the margins don't ask that question. They more say, here's why we don't see the way things that those of you guys who think you're inside the circle do. It really comes down to a great Pink Floyd song, Us and Them. Who's us? Who's them? But I love what you said, Joylissa. Jesus came and redefined all of that. I love the way Paul says it in Ephesians 2 when he says that basically Jesus came to take what we're, like, throughout the Old Testament, inside the circle would be the Jewish people, the chosen people, the children of Abraham. Outside the circle would be the Gentiles. What does Paul say that Jesus does in Ephesians 2? He came to break down the dividing wall of hostility and create one new humanity in himself. I'm the center of the circle now. It's not Jew-Gentile anymore. It's are you with me or not? That's what we see with this idea of marginalization. And so the question becomes for us, what we're going to really look at tonight, even using the book of Ruth as our lens, is not so much how do we deal with marginalization in the world around us, because... I think all of us could, unless we really over-assume our own importance. Come on, come on, it's totally good. Thank you. I think unless you really over-assume your own importance, you realize there's very little that you can do to affect the macro picture, the huge picture of what's going on in the world. But So what we're going to focus on tonight is what does it look like to deal with marginalization within the church, within the body of Christ? Because this is where we can affect transformation. This is where, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can begin to experience and express to the world around us the reconciliation, the recentering of the circle that Jesus came to do. And the book of Ruth gives us a really great view, because in some ways, the two main characters we see in chapter 2, Ruth, and Boaz, both operate based upon faith rather than common sense. It's just Ruth operates from inside the circle. I'm sorry, Boaz operates from inside of the circle, and Ruth is the one trying to work her way into it. And so in some ways, as we look at chapter 2, we learn how faith allows us to navigate both. Both how to live on the margins, but then how also to embrace those on the margins. Does that make sense? All right, so... I think what's really cool about this is we begin to see um, there's this one key word that I want to show you guys in the book of Ruth that really I think is the key word to understand about the entire book. And it comes up three different times. I'm going to throw this on the slide real quick. In chapter 1, verse 8, 220, and 310, we see this word kindly or kindness. It's kind of a soft word because when... We use the word kind. It's, we have a very limited, it's just, that's just, that's just a nice person, right? Random acts of kindness. It can be a pithy, just kind of throwaway thing. Here. And so it, we, we can miss the hugeness of what this word actually con, uh, conveys. This is the Hebrew word chesed. Can you say that with me? Chesed. you got to work up a little phlegm in Chesed. I don't often try to throw out, uh, I don't do that to impress. It's just such a dang good word that I wanted to teach you it because... It's translated kindness, but it, it conveys so much more than just kindness. Some English translations will translate this with the word, word loyalty or faithfulness. And, and while that, all, that gives us more, this word really centers around the idea of covenant. 
of the formalized commitment that God makes to his people and then his faithfulness to that commitment. And then conversely, for his people, their faithfulness to the covenant as well. So that's why I like to, to translate the word chesed as covenant faithfulness. There's this great quote I found from a scholar by the name of Sinclair Ferguson that I'm going to throw up here for you. You can read this along with me. When God revealed himself to Moses, he said that he was a God full of chesed, not simply love or kindness in an ordinary sense. It means God's deep goodness expressed in his covenant commitment, his absolute loyalty, his obligating of himself to bring to fruition the blessings that he has promised. Not a common sense that says, God, I'll make the promises and you keep them, but rather the God makes the promise, and he himself, he obligates himself to bring it to fruition, whatever it may cost him personally to do that. This covenanted commitment is a central theme of the Old Testament, and it forms the melody line of the book of Ruth. Chesed, covenant faithfulness. It seems that Ruth had, at least I mean, as a Moabite growing up outside the land of Israel, and then coming in as the foreigner with Naomi, it seems that she had some concept of this idea of covenant faithfulness because of the way that she expresses her desire. I mean, let's think about this for a second. How, how was Ruth on the margins? How was she marginalized outside the circle of Israel? I can think of four ways. I think because she wasn't really focused on where this was happening, but she just had in her faith that something greater was going to come. Yes, there's definitely a faith. There's a hopefulness in her beyond her circumstances. So what's that? So she's a widow. Okay, that's one. She's a foreigner. Foreigner. Not just a foreigner, a foreigner from a hated people. One more note. Check it out. So look back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 4. These, the two sons, Malin and Killian, they took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the other the name of the other was Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years. Now, we don't know for sure how long they were married for, but possibly up to 10 years. In the days before birth control or contraception or anything like that. She's married for maybe up to 10 years, and she comes back childless. This is a Gentile, Moabite, widow, barren woman. She's got four strikes against her. But yeah, look at the way that she demonstrates her commitment what, she, what, she, what her hope is, back in chapter 1, verse 16. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And this is the key. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. I mean, this passage right here reveals that she has at least, she's picked up at least some understanding of the Torah from, growing, from being a part of this family. Because even the wording that she uses here is very similar to the commitment that God himself makes to the people of Israel back in Exodus 6 when he sends Moses back to deliver them from Egypt. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. I think in this, Ruth is saying, I'm not just coming back. I'm not just going to stay with you, Naomi. I want to join your people. I want to join the covenant that joins your people to your God. And I think this because of the very next thing that she does. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Okay, we're going to find out more about him in a second. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Day one of her new life as an immigrant in Bethlehem. What does she choose to do? Go glean. I don't think that's coincidental. Again, I think that this shows us that she had at least some knowledge of the covenant. Because as a Gentile foreigner widow, well, look what the covenant says to do. When you reap your harvest at Leviticus 19, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. That means 
the corn. I don't know what you got. He repeats it again in Deuteronomy in the same way. Those gleanings, those corners of the field, don't get all of it. Don't go back through your field a second time. Because it shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. You shall remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt, therefore I command you to do this. Why care for the sojourner, the foreigner? Because that's what you were for 400 years. You know what it's like. So look out for them. Care for them. The covenant of Israel provided that an outsider, a foreigner, a widow, could find sustenance through gleaning in the field. So what's Ruth's first action? I'm going to go try to find someone who will let me glean. I'm going to seek to be faithful to the covenant. Now again, remember, this is the time of the judges. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. She has no guarantee that in going from field to field, she'll find anyone who has any intention of obeying this right here. But she goes out going, okay, if this is what God said, I'm going to trust that and we'll see what happens. And Naomi, who's still so bitter, doesn't say, yeah, sure, I'll go with you. She just goes, go, go for it. Almost like, yeah, sure. I don't know if you'll get anything. But let's just go. So she heads out. And she begins to glean. And chapter 3 says that she just... Or chapter 2, verse 3. Says that she just so happened to come to the far part of the field that belonged to Boaz. Who just so happens to be from the same clan as Elimelech, her late husband. Love the way that the writer of Ruth, whoever that was, says she just happened to do this. And Boaz just happened to be there. And we'll find out in a couple of verses. Boaz ha just happened to come by right then. And repeatedly saying that these things just happened, what is he trying to tell us? Exactly. They didn't just happen. Right? Without saying, God did this. He's telling us, these things aren't coincidental. Ruth is demonstrating a desire to be loyal to God's covenant, and God is leading her along. I love that. Now check this out. Look at verse 6. Um, so she comes into the field, and it says this. She begins to, to glean. Boaz comes along and says, whose woman is this? And the servant in verse 6, he says to the man who is in charge of the reapers, she says, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Did she half-heartedly jump into this? No, she, she got after it. She worked hard. We're going to find out by the end of the day, she's going to go home with over 30 pounds of threshed barley grain to bring home to Naomi. She worked hard. I'm sure she slept really well that night. And I think that's one of the most remarkable things about this. Again, we're talking about what does it look like? How do you deal with life on the margins in faithfulness to God? One of the most remarkable things is that God's provision for the poor wasn't a handout. It wasn't a soup kitchen. It was work. Think about that for a second. How do you provide for not just that... The widow, the fatherless, bake them a loaf of bread? No, when you harvest your grain, don't go back and pick up every last little bit and don't do the corners, leave that for them. Why does God demand, or not demand, but why does God set this up in a way that they would have to work for it? What does this teach us about the nature of work? It's good. It's good. That there is something so much more dignifying about providing them work than just providing them a handout. Now think about this for a second. Because the, the place where I come from, Simi Valley, California, kind of the way that I knew I had to protect my congregation from going too far is I knew there'd be people in the, in the church who would just go, yeah, that's right. There ain't no handouts. There's those things at a free lunch. Everybody's got to work for it. They don't want to work for it. Like, and I had to say, whoa, okay, hold on now. Like, like seriously, like, like you fall off on the other side of like an idolatrous self-sufficiency. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. That's not what this passage is talking about. God never commands people, God helps those who help themselves. No, instead, he also doesn't say, here's a disincentivizing, disincentivizing, dehumanizing handout that never actually gets you out of your situation. 
but just helps me feel better because I could give you something. What he calls them to do is work. God makes the claim on both the poor and the rich, on both the landowner and the one gleaning in the field, that all of this is mine. And as the one who owned everything, everything came from his hand, whether the, 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 your name was on the title of it or not. In many ways, this is very similar to the situation we see in Genesis chapter 2 in the Garden of Eden. God created this beautiful garden, and then he put the man there to work it and to keep it. I've given you everything. I've planted every tree. It's all there. And he doesn't say just go by and work and pick the or go by and pick the fruit and go on your way. Just work it, keep it, let it grow, let it flourish. This is part of who we are as human beings, as image bearers of God. We were made to work. Now, work has been corrupted and twisted by sin and by the wickedness of men. And not only that, Genesis three tells us that creation actively works against our work in it. So it's not a perfect situation. But it is really important to understand that in the way that we deal with marginalization, there is something dignifying and honoring about work. To the point that Paul will later say in 1 Thessalonians 3 that if anyone is not willing to work, don't give them the handout. He says, if a man will not work, let him not eat. And so in some ways, as we think about this, like show each other the dignity, treat one another with the dignity as image bearers of God that we affirm the goodness of work in the way that we work with each other. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's the reality that those who are physically or mentally handicapped, the work's going to have to look different. But I do think like that's one thing we're passionate about at our church is we don't want to just objectify those who are even like mentally or physically handicapped in our church, but to find good ways for them to contribute to the life of the church. One of the guys that's been on staff at our church about as long as I am He's on our facilities group. He's got some, some uh, mental handicaps, some delays where he can't read, and it's hard to understand him when he talks. But he is so dignified through his work on behalf of the church. It's such a beautiful, and I love having him as one of my coworkers in that way. Where it's not that you just, here, let me do everything for you. But no, dude, God made you. You're made in his image. Go for it. Do it. It's beautiful. So let me, let me just, if we can, before we move on to Boaz, Let's just pull out a couple of uh, principles, if you will, for those on the margin. Does that make sense? All right, feel free to throw your two cents in on these. But first step, make sure, like we see with Ruth, begin by trusting in God's faithfulness. Not making promises for God, not just operating according to common sense. But know what he's promised to you. Know what he's promised to those who follow Jesus. And then put your faith into action. Trust in those promises. You can take to the bank the promises that God makes. The promises that you make for God, you enter those at your own risk. So, as a way of a starter, what are some of the promises that God gives to those of us who are followers in Jesus? Feel free to snap a picture of that one and jot some of those down. These are just a place to get started with that. Ruth looked at the covenant and said, I can glean. I'll start there. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, where do we start? You're going to see in a lot of these, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, that's the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks about, don't be anxious about what you're going to eat or drink or wear. Like, your father closes the grass of the field, which are burned into a crisp right now. He'll take care of you. You're worth much more than they are, right? First Timothy 6 is where he, he commands the rich to be rich in good deeds, to be eager to share and take hold of that which is truly life. This is one of the ways in which God provides for his people. 2 Thessalonians 3 is also the place where he says, if you don't want to work, don't eat. Galatians 6.10, we're going to look at in a second. But that's just to get you started on how do we start to take these promises to the men. I would say from there, if you find yourself in a place of need, and need of provision, or just feeling, not just provision, but even just feeling disconnected from relationships, feeling on the outside of the community, I would say pray specifically for what you need. So that you'll recognize when God's provision comes and you can thank him for it. I think oftentimes we miss opportunities to praise God because we don't pray specifically enough to recognize when he specifically answers. Mm -hmm. And I think even in that way, when we pray specifically, it's also our open-handed way of saying, God, based upon how I see things, this is what I think I need. 
but I know you see the situation way more clearly than I do. So would you also conform my desires to fit what I actually need, not just what I think I need? Third, expect God to provide for you through his people. This one's tough often for us as Americans. We don't like to make our needs known because we don't like to be beholden to others. And so therefore we rob each other of the opportunity to be the grace of God in each other. And then next thing you know, we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And we actually think we pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And it exacerbates the problem. So expect God to provide for you through his people. Seek the needs of others, not just your own. I think that's what's so remarkable. Ruth is in an even more disadvantaged position than Naomi. But she's not just seeking to put food in her own belly. She's bringing this stuff home to Naomi. Even if you feel like you have nothing to share. Even if you feel like you're the one in the vulnerable position, look to those that you can assist. Look to those that you can be grace to, that you can receive into relationship. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on that? Good. Let's move to Boaz now. He's on the other side of the social spectrum. We meet him and... Ruth chapter 2, verse 1, he's introduced to us as a man who is a worthy man. Some of your translations might say he was a, a rich man. This word really means that he had both social status and means. He was uh, rich enough that not only did he have lands, but he was able to employ or own servants to harvest those crops for him so that he can come in and check on the harvest because it's already going on without him there. This is a man who uh, has influence within the city. He, uh, he, we're going to find throughout the rest of the story, he's got some clout in Bethlehem. He's very much inside the circle. He comes into the situation, and he comes in, and he begins to see what Naomi's up to. The foreman, as we already read, he lets her know uh, this is who she is. Ruth, she's the one who came with Naomi. She's been working hard all day. And so he comes to her in verse 8, and look what he says to her. With his status, with his means, look at how he provides for her. He says to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. She comes into the situation, probably once she sees the, the, the landowner comes in too, she's going, okay, this is the make or break moment. Either he's going to let me be here or he's going to go get that Moabite trash out of here. But he comes up to her personally and he says to her, not only, hey, yeah, it's okay to be here, but he says, stay here. Don't feel like you have to go find another field after that. As a matter of fact, I want you to stay here. Not only that, check this out. He says, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. He says, keep close to my young women. This is remarkable because typically the way that this would work, the men would come through with the reapers. They'd cut down the grain. The women would come through afterward and bind up the grain into sheaves, and then they'd collect it. Once all that's done, then the gleaners were allowed to come in. But do you see what Boaz tells her to do? You don't have to wait till my crews leave. You can be right in there among my young women and glean among them. He gives her privileged position to be, be there right alongside his servants doing it. Not only that, he charges the young men not to touch her. He, he guarantees her protection. I don't think this is because some sort of sexual abuse would have happened to her. I think more because she's a Moabite. The young men would have chased her away. So he's saying, I've told my foreman, the guys that are watching this whole operation, you're allowed to be here. I've given you my permission to be here. Then, okay, so this is all that's going on during the work time. Come midday or whenever it was, when it's time to take a break and have a meal, look what he does next. Look at verse 14. This is perhaps the most shocking part of the whole story. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed her roasted grain. This is a Gentile, Moabite, barren widow who is given a seat at the table with Boaz and his workmen. 
I think this is the part that would have shocked the workmen more than anything else, too. It's really hard to overstate how important table fellowship was in this culture at this time. Even in many places around the world, it's much more important than us. You know, we, we have no problem running through the drive-thru and grabbing a bite to eat if we're on our way to work. But there are many cultures where, um, I remember hearing some stories about exchange students who came to the United States, and the most shocking thing to, thing to them is that Americans will eat by themselves. They've never in their life eaten a meal by themselves because meals are about community. Meals are about relationship. Meals are not just about filling your belly with fuel to keep doing the work. It's about togetherness. But the way in which he includes her, brings her inside the circle by the simple act of giving her a seat at the table and passing the bread to her, I think that's the moment that would have blown everybody's minds, including Ruth. When she rose after this, she had some leftovers. She actually was given like a doggy bag, if you will, to take home afterwards. When she rose to glean, Boaz said, instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves. When they've, when they've cut them down, they've binded them together. Hey, not only that, pull some out for her. The law commanded that Boaz let her glean. He not only lets her glean, he keeps blessing and blessing and blessing and blessing her. Now at this point, there's probably a thought going on in a lot of our minds. Is this because he liked her? <laughs> Is this because she was some fine-looking foreign beauty who's available? And Boaz, who maybe he was rich, maybe he wasn't that good-looking. And he goes, oh my gosh, here's my chance. <laughs> I think there's so much, there, there is romance in this story, but it comes later in chapter 3, and it's not like we're used to. But I think there's something so much better than just romantic interest at work here. You know what's driving Boaz to do all this? Chesed. Covenant faithfulness. He's seeking out of God's provision for him to graciously provide for others. The compassion shown to a foreign widow by an honorable man who understood God's faithfulness in his own life and so therefore thought, sought to be faithful to others. Check this out. Look at verse 10. After, like, when all this happened, right in the middle of all this, it says, Ruth fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? Since I am a foreigner. It's almost like she has to remind him. You remember I'm the Moabite barren widow, right? Like, I just want to make sure you, you, you don't think I'm somebody else. Because there's no sense in the way that you're treating me, right? She falls on her face before him. And I love this. I was reading this one commentator, Dean Ulrich, where he, he said it so beautifully. He points out the different ways in which Ruth refers to herself versus the way that Boaz refers to her. Look at this. Ruth calls herself a foreigner in 2.10. And then she says that she's not on the same level as Boaz's servant girls in verse 13. Boaz, on the other hand, used the terms young woman in verse 5 and my daughter in verse 8. Rather than emphasizing the social distance between him and Ruth and so belittling her, he affirmed her personhood and elevated her standing. He could have said, I know, I know. Hey, I, it's the little people. We do it for the little people. I just want to give you, throw you some bones. No, instead, he actually works really hard to close the gap. I know there's like astronomical difference between my status and yours, but I'm going to use my status to elevate you. This is remarkable what happens. Not only that, he gives a reason for why he does this. Look what it says here. Verse 11. Boaz answers her, why am I doing this? Because all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She says, you remember I'm a foreigner, right? 
And he says to her, you're not just a foreigner. You're a, well, remember we've heard before that Boaz is a member, or that, that uh, Boaz was a member of the same clan as Elimelech. Her uh, father-in-law, is everybody getting the same alert? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, so Strong winds creating overnight fire danger, so stay alert, everybody. Okay. Good to know. All right. And we're back. Okay. I love this because, again, she reminds me he's a, he's a, she's a foreigner. He says, no, actually, you're a... I was going to say clansman. That's a terrible phrase. You're, you're a member of the same clan as me. We're family. And so in that way, all of the goodness, all the chesed that you've demonstrated to Naomi by coming back with her was actually kindness you've showed to me. And so my loyalty is in response to the loyalty that you've shown to Naomi. Not only that, he says, you're not just a foreign widow because you left your father and your mother. You left your people. You left your gods. And not only that, you've come to take refuge under Yahweh, the God of Israel. You're part, like, you've come into this covenant community, and I'm affirming that you're one of us now. I'd said before that God commanded the people of Israel never to associate with the Moabites back in Deuteronomy, but throughout the Old Testament, the door was always left open for Gentiles from any race to enter into the covenant of Israel, provided that they truly entered into the covenant. That they submitted to Yahweh as their God. That they took all that on. That even the males would go through circumcision. And they would be counted part of the covenant people. And that's what Boaz sees happening here. Now I think as a, as a righteous man, as a God-fearing man, Boaz would have extended the same grace of gleaning to anyone. Any foreigner, you can come glean in my field. But everything he piles on top of that, all the additional blessings and provision and seat at the table and all of that, he does as a response to the covenant faithfulness that he already sees in her. And so he says, you've taken refuge under Yahweh's wings, and so therefore may God repay you and reward you. Now, this might sound strange to some of us, the idea of God repaying Ruth. It almost makes it sound like God owes her, doesn't it? Okay, you did good things, and now God's in your debt, so hopefully he comes through. Here's another place where the English language kind of lets us down a little bit. Both of these words, reward and repay here, they have the same root in Hebrew. You know what it is? Shalom. Shalom. What does that mean? Peace. Peace. Not just peace as in like the difference between war and peace. There's fighting or there's not fighting. Hebrew idea of shalom is fullness and wholeness and everything as it ought to be. So what Boaz is saying to her is not some way that God owes you now. But what he's saying is, you've sought refuge under Yahweh. You left your father and mother. You've now sought refuge, refuge under Yahweh. And now may he complete that. May he give you the refuge and rescue that you've looked for. May he bring that to fullness to shalom. So now, in the same way we did with Ruth, let's, let's draw out some princi principles for those who are inside the circle, those who find themselves in positions of status or means within society, within the local church. How do they operate in the same way toward those who are on the outside? It starts off in the same place that it starts with those on the outside. It doesn't start with what we got, want God to do or what we want to do for ourselves. It starts with trusting in God's faith. It starts with recognizing that everything that he is, everything that you have, whether it's financial means or property or a great house for everybody to meet in, or education, or just influence within relationships, that has been given to you by God. And he's been given, it has been given to you so that you can now leverage it for the benefit of others. And if he's the source of it, you don't have to fear losing it. Because it's not like he's going to run out. You can risk what he's given you to bless others. That's what we see Boaz doing. He risks a lot in this story. Not just offending his people by the way that he treats this, this Moabite woman. 
when we get to chapter three and the whole weird uncover my feet in the threshing floor thing, where Ruth basically says, would you marry me and redeem our family? He risks his entire social standing in the community by taking on a Moabite woman. He risks the entire future of his family and possessions by possibly taking on a barren woman. But yet you see him go, okay, I see faithfulness. I see chesed in you, Ruth, and I want to now reciprocate that. I want to be loyal to you and trust that God will be loyal to us. We can risk to dignify others, because that's the second one there. Seek to bring dignity to the people. It's amazing how in all the stuff that, Ruth, that, that Boaz gives to Ruth, he still has her glean. She still goes and gathers everything. She still goes and threshes everything. She still carries the 30-plus pounds of grain back home. This might not seem very chivalrous, but it definitely dignifies her as an image-bearer of God created to, good, to do good work. He dignified her. The greatest point that I want you guys to get from this, we have such a, a transactional way of looking at things. Even when we talk about marginalization, one of the ways in which we distinguish who's in from who's out, we use the terms the haves and the have-nots. We make it about stuff. Even when we seek to meet people's needs, sometimes we stop at the stuff. The stuff is just, it's the, it's the, the side dishes to the relationship. That's what Boaz was offering Ruth. You're one of us. And I'm going to use all of my social influence and means to let everyone else know that you belong here. Offer a relationship, not just stuff. And point people to God so that he gets the glory, not just yourself. I love how he says that. He says, the reason why I'm all doing all this is may the Lord bless you. May he bring that shalom, that fullness to you. couple more things I want to point out to you guys as you go because here's another thing that I think sometimes is a place where we trip over and where we have a lot to learn from this. If ultimately it's not just about sharing our belongings but about having a sense of belonging to one another, everything that Boaz does for Ruth is in response to her trust in Yahweh. Again, like I said, he probably would have let any foreigner come glean on his field. But all the on top of that stuff, he does because he already sees in her a desire to entrust herself to Israel's God. This is an, a family kind of chesed. He is reciprocating to her the trust that he sees in her toward Israel's God. Does that make sense? There's a principle here. The reason why I said at the beginning that I want to focus our discussion on what this looks like in the local church because this is where we can affect change. This is where we can now live as a display to the rest of the world for what God has in store for the rest of the world. You and I in this room cannot fix the huge, broken, divided problems going on in our society. But in this room, we can get after it. Because we have the Holy Spirit of God living within us. And because as we do that and commit deeply to each other, I mean, not me because I'm a part of another local body a couple hills over, but each of us in our local congregations, as we seek to radically express this kind of sharing our belongings because we belong to one another, that has such an amazing evangelistic potential. To actually witness to the reconciliation the, the recentering of the circle around Jesus, where now it's no longer about how different or similar you are to me, but the fact that we all orbit around the Son, who is Jesus Christ, and He's the one that holds us all together. Galatians 6:10, Paul gets to this same similar point when he says this. He says, "As we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household." here we have the chance to live out something the true unity of the spirit the fellowship of the body of Christ and the way that people can as we experience it we're won over by it right maybe some of you guys in here a few months ago a year ago you've never experienced fellowship maybe quite like what you have here 
And I hope that by this point you kind of go, I don't want to let other stuff crowd this out. Man, this is precious. This is, this is, this is an itch I didn't even know I had, but now that it's been scratched, I don't, I don't want to move away from this. That's why he says, as we have opportunity, yes, let us do good and pour our lives out for the sake of those around us. Here, within this family, we have the I don't know how, like, and my wife and I sought to love our neighbors. One of the most frustrating things has been get, getting the, yeah, but you're good people talk. We love you. This is how God loves us. This is what it looks like to be a part of the family of God. Yeah, but you guys are just different. It's like, gosh, they need to see way more than just my wife and I. So they can see that maybe we're different from them, but there's a unity that God's building with us. That that's what starts to pull us together. It's not about ignoring those outside the church, but understanding that as we love each other this way, we have the opportunity to put something beautiful on display, like what we see between Ruth and Boaz. Because if it looks like this, if marginalization is based upon who's in the circle and who's out, what Boaz does for Ruth is first off, he brings her in. You're allowed to be here. You have the you are one of us. And over the course of the story, by the end of the story, when her and, uh, and Boaz have gotten married, and she's given birth to that baby named Obed. There's this amazing statement that the women in the village say to Naomi. They say, your daughter-in-law is more than seven sons. She is worth more than seven sons because we see her faith in Yahweh. The story of Ruth is not just one of first being included, but then even of being elevated within that society, within that community. You know what's so remarkable? I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit here. What's so remarkable is this same inclusion and elevation, this is also a picture of what Jesus has done for us. At the beginning, I talked about this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me go back to this real quick. Think about this through the lens of Ruth and Boaz. Ephesians 2 verse 11. Therefore, Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, that's me, then we also hear not have, as far as they know, any Jewish blood in them. Okay, so this is most of us in this room. Does anybody definitely know that they do have Jewish heritage? Matt's not here. Matt's not here. Oh, man. He gets to be the hipster who says he was into it before it was cool, because these people truly were. But for the rest of us, this is what's such good news here. Check it out. Remember that at one time, you who were Gentiles, which is most of us in this room, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at that time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There's no way you can get farther outside the circle, more on the margins than what that just said. What did Jesus, the baby in the manger, God in human flesh, the parable-speaking, wonder-working preacher from Nazareth, what did he do? But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God. It's not just the story of Ruth that is about inclusion and elevation. It is the story of the gospel. It is the story of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, it doesn't matter how much you feel like you're on the margins in the rest of life, you have a seat at the most important table that there is. Mm -hmm. You have an unalienable, in uh, no way you could lose it, position as a son or daughter of God. That's who you are. Jared gave away the spoiler at the end of the book, that basically this whole book is kind of like the Rogue One of the story of David. You know, like the Rogue One of the Star Wars movie, basically just tells you how they got the plans for the Death Star. Sorry, Spoiler. <laughs> it's been a year, like. Right, I know. It's, yeah. okay. Sorry, anyone out there that's really out of touch. But um, <laughs> it just gives you this little footnote, and this whole story of Ruth. Basically, we get to the end of it. It's like, oh, now we know who David's great grandpa was, Boaz. 
We know who his great-grandma was. Ruth, we know who his grandpa was. Obed. Yeah, but you see that this woman, Ruth, this four strikes against her Gentile, Moabite, barren widow is so included and elevated that she is the royal matriarch of the family of David. Mm. That's remarkable, mm. isn't it? Yeah. And not only that, the other famous baby born in Bethlehem comes from the same family as well. Jesus, the son of David, comes from the same family. Like, Boaz, in these little but remarkable acts of kindness shown to Ruth, Ruth in her going out there, going out on a limb and saying, let's see if anybody wants to be faithful to the covenant and let me glean. In these little acts of faithfulness, they could have had no idea that God was up to something so much bigger. That ultimately all of this was going to tie into his plan to bring the Messiah who would rescue people from every tribe and tongue and nation. The story of the gospel is of inclusion and of elevation. So much of this story points to Jesus. Think about this for a second. Jesus is the better Boaz. He is the one with all the status and means as the Son of God, who leverages all of his position to bring us into the family. <coughs> Jesus is the better Ruth. He is the one who came and grew up on the outside of the circle, but yet demonstrated such faithfulness to God that he made a way for us to be. Jesus is even the better Obed, the little baby boy born to, to Ruth and Boaz who turns out to be the one who redeems Naomi and keeps the family line going. Jesus is that even more important baby from Bethlehem who was born not just to redeem a single family, but all the families of the earth. Who was born not just to keep one family name going, to perpetuate the name of the dead in their inheritance, but actually to be the one to take on death itself so it would no longer stand between. That's how big Jesus is. That's the thing I love doing at Christmas time. Christmas time is where we put all the little pictures of Jesus small. And I love juxtaposing that with the gigantic, big, huge, cosmic Son of God, eternal, one with the Father, ruler of heaven and earth. Because when you see how far he went to leverage all of who he was as the Son of God, so that, as John says, we might become the sons. How can you not worship? How can you not want to say, okay, if I now have this status as a son or daughter of God, I don't want to just sit on it. How do I use this to bless others? How do I use this to take those who don't even know about this Jesus yet or don't even know about this life that we can share together and be like Boaz to them? Leverage who God, what God has given to me so that they might be included and elevated. I know that's what you guys are about. I love hearing stories about the ways that you guys, the, 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 the constant carousel of people who maybe have never even set foot in a church or haven't in years, who walk through the doors of your all's lives. I think that's beautiful. But what I really hope you see tonight is how important it is that we're not just sharing our belongings. We share the belonging that God has given us through Jesus with each other. That's, at the end of the day, the most important thing we have to share. This Jesus, I exalt you as the honorable Son of God, one with the Father, enjoying perfect fellowship with your Father and the Holy Spirit from all eternity. I exalt you as the one who took all of that and leveraged it by going so low to be born in human flesh and be humble and obedient to the point of death on the cross so that you might be glorified to the right hand of the Father and the way that Hebrews 2.10 says it, to make a way that many sons might be brought to glory with you. Your gospel is a story of your desire to include and elevate us who were strangers and exiles without you and without hope in the world. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the better Boaz. Thank you, Jesus, that you have included us. And now, Lord, would you make us messengers of reconciliation, that we would take the privileged position we've been given as your sons and daughters, as brothers and sisters with one another, and use it to bless and include and elevate others. 
but I pray by next time, this, this time next year, there would be new brothers and sisters mm -hmm. in this room mm -hmm. who don't just share belongings, but share that sense of belonging in you. Would you do this because this is what you're about? You're building this magnificent family that you want to spend forever with, and we want to be part of that with you. We pray this in your name, Lord.